want to uh, welcome you again to another episode of Prodigy Search Presents. Uh, you know, I've been fortunate to do probably a dozen or more of these since we started back in April, but I got it with all due respect to the, the dozen or so people we've had before. This one I'm looking forward to uh, the most fun and, and introduced to you, Andy Bernstein, Andrew Bernstein. Andy, I don't know if you go by Andrew informally, but clearly your business is success is under Andrew Bernstein. But and you welcome to our Prodigy Search Presents. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Scott, it's amazing to, to connect with you, my friend. Um, you can call me Andy, Andrew, whatever you want to call me, Bev, because we, <laughs> we've known each other. You're probably one of the longest, uh, I don't want to say oldest, because I hate using old at our age, right? But yeah. the, the longest friendship in business, longest um, collaboration, whatever you want to call it. We've known each other. I think since the beginning of my career, it's just coming up to 40, 40 years. Next month is 40 years I've been in business. Well, I started, I'll get to that in a minute, because uh, I want to do give you an appropriate introduction for those that don't know Andy. Um, among many, many, many accolades, it may be high on your list. In 2018, Andy was um, named to uh, as a Naismith um, Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame um kurt dowdy award i think is what it referred to andy but what an amazing honor to be in the hall, basketball hall of fame that was in 2018 as you mentioned 40 years i believe it was the nba's official photographer um you know started back in 80 81 82 we'll talk about in a minute you know i was as andy pointed out i was fortunate to meet i think back in might have been 82 or 83 in josh rosenfeld's office or something <laughs> around that josh yeah. at the time was a pr director for the lakers but I had gone over to the Clippers in 84, and Andy, I think we uh, formally brought you in as a team photographer then, and uh, I don't want to say the rest is history, because you made the history, I didn't, but, uh, <laughs> but, and then brought you the Kings in 88, and you've done, you, know, you, you either currently are or have been the official photographer of the Lakers, the Kings, the Clippers, the Dodgers, on and on and on and on. Um, you've, you've written a couple books, collaborated with Kobe Bryant, I'm going to talk about that in a little bit, and with Phil Jackson. Um, very impressive credentials. And I, I'm sure I'm missing a lot. And is there anything else I, I, we should highlight before we get into it in terms of your massive credentials? Well, I, I just want to go down memory lane with you, Scott, for a minute, because you mentioned the Clippers in 84. And uh, I'm wondering if you remember this. Oh, my God. Yeah. This is the team schedule. <laughs> this, <laughs> this was the first Look, it's printed on here as a poster. Uh, this was the first Clippers, L.A. Clippers home schedule. You remember that? Yes, yeah. I do. Bill Walton, Norm Nixon, and Marcus Johnson, for those you don't yeah. know. But, wow, what memories. Yeah, I well, go, 84. I, 84. I go one, one better with you. How about this one? Look, I pulled this one out of the archive. From the, where was that? That was on the beach in Santa Monica. On, right? on the beach. On the beach. Can you believe this? This uh, – Lancaster Gordon, Bill Walton, Marcus Johnson, Norm Nixon with the uh, with the Walkman. <laughs> Got a Walkman, and Junior Bridgman. Junior Bridgman. Yeah. I mean, first of all, could you imagine ever trying to do this again with like LeBron and AD? And <laughs> it's like forget it. Anyway, I thought I thought you'd get a kick out of seeing those. Well, and, and I'm gonna talk about it in a minute, Andy. But you, you did a number of different fun shoots like that. I remember seeing one recently you put on social media. I think. The Lakers on the yacht. On the yacht, uh, yeah. Whatever year that might have been, 80s? Yeah, that was uh, That was after the, uh, I think it was either 87 or 88. It's one of those championship years. And our good buddy Lon Rosen had, had fa a fantastic idea. He goes, Andy, uh, tomorrow we're going to get the whole team to go over the body glove yacht, right? Because his buddy owned body glove, yeah. right? And 
we're going to just do a team picture over there somehow. And I said, okay, <laughs> I don't know what that means. Right. So I show up and it was the most unworkable situation you can possibly imagine. This, this beautiful boat was tied to the dock with boats on either side. There was no way to set up anything, lighting, camera, tripod. Um, I was doing like a Walenda act, you know, between two boats. <laughs> and then Lon had the additional brilliant idea of, of like giving the guys props, you know, like they were fishing or like it was a yeah. nautical theme. Right. And it's the most hilarious picture ever. And um, it has had a new life with, with my new platform, Legends of Sport. But people love that. Jeannie actually commented on that poster. Um, I think the Lakers posted it during the bubble for some unknown reason. I don't know why, but she she uh, commented on it. It was pretty well, cool. Those of you listening or, or watching, uh, Jeannie being Jeannie Bus, the um, uh, I guess co-owner, but yeah. really the lead owner, uh, one yeah. of her siblings. Um, mm -hmm. uh, after her father Jerry Bus had, had unfortunately passed away, but mm -hmm. uh, Jeannie, uh, we all have many many memories. Which leads me, and we can go on forever. And I and I'm absolutely looking forward to this so much, but. What you, I mean, you've, you've been shooting for 40 years. You've done probably every major event that, you know, anybody can ever think on, think about. But is there, probably unfair to ask you this one moment, but are there a couple moments that stand out in your 40 years that say, man, uh, I look back and, you know, th these are the pinnacle of what I've done. I mean, I know you were around the Dream Team in 1992 in Barcelona, which was, yeah. you know, the major, major change and shift to the Olympic Games and that team. But, what, what, what are some of your favorite moments or moments? I'm glad you brought up the dream team because that was literally the, the dream assignment, you know, for a photographer. Seven weeks I was embedded with the team from the first day of training camp, which was in San Diego. And then they went to the Tournament of the Americas in Portland. Then we went to Monte Carlo for quote unquote training camp. Wow. <laughs> and then Barcelona. And um, I was the only photographer embedded with them the entire time. My good friend Nat Butler joined me along the way. And together we documented this historic moment in sports and NBA history, Olympic history. Um, that was pretty amazing. Um, you know, and if you look at, at, at a career, you know, being able to be around uh, Magic's entire career from day one. Right. Well, actually, I came in in Magic's second season at, officially, but I had, did shoot in his uh, rookie year um, as a student. But then um, to, you know, document his entire career. And then, of course, to document Kobe's 20-year career um, right. from literally beginning to end, first picture to last picture. Wow. Um, wow. So it's been a good run. You know, I was around for the whole last dance. It was a, it was a real thrill watching the last dance Bulls uh, documentary. I kept seeing myself, you know, with the mustache and the big... <laughs> Jufro ah. hair, you know, you remember me like that. Yeah. And all my buddies who were documenting that for NBA Entertainment and, you know, being there for all six championships um, and even before. I mean, it was, it was truly, uh, it was very nostalgic, but it was very gratifying to know that, you know, yeah, I was put in that position by the yeah. NBA and able to document that. And, you know, the beat goes on. I mean, this bubble experience I just had, you know, I was in the bubble for seven weeks, 53 days. Um, I don't think God willing we'll ever see that again. <laughs> so that was pretty historic. So let's yeah. come back to that. But I want to ask you, because uh, again, we can go on for, but I want to ask you about um, Kobe, you know, mm -hmm. and I know you collaborated with Kobe on a book that was, is been much talked about the Mamba mentality. Um, 
Talk, talk a little bit about that collaboration. I mean, again, you mentioned you shot Kobe from his first to mm-hmm. his unfortunate passing in his last, but share a little bit about that book and, and, and about the relationship you have with Kobe. And, and I know equally with his family. Yeah, it was, um, it was kind of meant to be, I think, from the beginning. Um, Kobe and I met um, 96. He was a rookie. He just turned 18 years old. He, had, he was 17 when he was drafted, and he turned 18 before media right. day. And I met him on that media day in 96 in, uh, I believe it was Loyola Marymount, Jim, where the, the Lakers used Alma mater, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Where they used to have their, you know, their practices and stuff. Yeah. And... You know, by that time, I had been in the league. I'd worked for the Lakers. I had shot all of Showtime. I had been exposed to Magic and Pat Riley and Jerry West and the Bus family. And I had built a lot of trust, I think. And I had sure. built, you know, somewhat of a reputation. And anyway, so I go in to meet, my, meet him. And you probably heard this story, but I'll tell it anyway. So I go in to meet him on my set. He comes over to my set. You know, I'm going to take his headshot for the first time as a Laker. And he said, hey, Kobe, I'm Andy Bernstein. I'm your team photographer. I put my hand out and he grabs my hand, looks me straight in the eyes. Well, I know who you are. And I said, wow. uh, and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, this is, here's this is a smart ass kid. Who's like, he does, how do you possibly know who I am? We never met. He, and uh, I, told, I told him that. He says, well, I know you because I had all your posters in my room growing up. <laughs> wow. And I'm thinking to myself, Scott, I'm thinking yeah, this is unbelievable that this guy has studied every inch of a, of a poster. And I, you've seen a million sports posters. You ever, do you know where the photo credit is? It's like printed, like in, in very the bottom, very, yeah. very bottom, in microscopic almost type, you know. The only people who look at those are fellow photographers because we're all jealous of who, who got which yeah. poster, you know. And it just struck me that here was a kid that was so driven and and so uh determined and that he would read a a, you know a a credit and i'm 20 years older than him i'm thinking wow i i kind of see a little bit of myself in him at 18 like i remember how driven i was a little bit of of an edge a chip on my shoulder you you kind of remember the old me scott you know aggressive can't take no for an answer and in a good way right well ever can have a bad experience with you ever well, I friend, I appreciate that. Can I print that on a T-shirt? <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, point being is that we just bonded, and you know I saw how close he was with his family, especially with his dad at the time, and he lived with his parents like his first two years. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I, I I admired him. I really did. I, I and I could see how it was painful for him to be sitting on the bench, and Del Harris wouldn't play him, and. And then he chucked those three air balls during the playoffs against Utah and, and any other player, especially somebody his age, you know, they could have broken his spirit, not Kobe. He came back. He, he said he shot a million shots that summer, which I don't doubt. And he came back stronger than ever in his second year. And that was the year, of course, really was his unveiling at the all-star game. And, um, you know, the rest is really history. And I was very fortunate um, a, that the NBA put me in a position to be around him all the time. The Lakers accepted me into that inner circle, especially my good friend who you know very well, Gary Vitti, who really opened up the training room to me, which he didn't have to do because that was his domain. Um, Mitch Kupchak was Im- incredibly gracious and understood what I was trying to do. And so did Phil Jackson. I mean, Phil got it. I, I had known Phil wow. from his Bulls days. So. 
But building yeah. that, those relationships, Andy, is a credit to your personality. Again, I'm not trying to be overly gratuitous, but I, but it's you, and you're very humble. But building those that trust. I mean, guy like Phil Jackson, obviously won what 10, 11, 11 championships. Yes. Gary Vitti, as you mentioned, was the longtime trainer mm-hmm. for the Lakers, and I had interaction with Gary Young in my career. And Gary's a great mm-hmm. guy, but he was he was tough, right? Oh yeah, protective yeah. of his domain, yeah. and they're in situations yeah. where they're they're treating and caring for the players and to have you in that environment is again it shows a lot of the trust in you as a person and and Mm -hmm. how you treated that outside those confines yeah well thank you i i have to go back to pat riley honestly and this is a story you probably never heard scott but um here i am this young photographer and i'm trying to make a mark for myself you know there are other photographers out there and you know everybody's good and they're producing good good material but you know, my, I, th- I felt a little bit like my forte was, was being on the inside, was kind of getting the behind the scenes, um, seeing what goes on behind the curtain, so to speak. And, uh, <laughs> and when Pat became coach, um, I, I, you know, it was in my second, third year or whatever, I kept trying to get into his huddle. And, you know, there'd be a timeout or before the game when he would be talking to the players or when they gathered the team after halftime or whatever. And every time I'd come in, he would see me like he'd be in the clipboard, but he would see me and he would point at me and he would use very um, specific language from Schenectady where he grew up, which I understand because I'm a Brooklyn guy. And I, you know, and, and I just kept, I just kept doing it. And, you know, and finally, maybe two weeks later, um, I'm on the baseline getting ready for the game. The players were coming out for the game he's getting himself ready with Bill Burke and, you know, and he looks over and he sees me and he goes, come over here like this. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to the principal's office. This is, <laughs> my career is it's come to a screeching halt. <laughs> and he looks, he looked me straight in the eye. He says, he says, kid, you call me kid. He says, kid, he says, why the hell you keep trying to get in my huddle? <laughs> and I said, I keep try, you know, getting you out. And I said, coach, you got to understand, people want to see you talking to magic. They want to see you and Kareem. They see you and Bertka doing strategy. You know, people want to get in there. Even TV wasn't really getting yeah. in the huddle. They were kind of right. from the outside. And he said, you know, he said, okay, I get it. He said, uh, I'm going to let you do it once tonight, just once. And if you screw it up, he didn't say screw it up, but if you screw it up, <laughs> you're never coming back. <laughs> so meanwhile, fast forward, fast forward, I do it. The next game was a couple of days later. I had made a couple of prints, right? And I, I go into his office before the game. I give him the prints. And he looks up. He says, you were in my huddle? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I said, yes, coach. I was in your huddle. He goes, okay, you did good. <laughs> you, could cu- you could come back. <laughs> so that, the reason I tell that story is that it built a lot of trust. It yeah. built a lot of self-confidence, right, in me. And, you know, that that was seen by people like Phil Jackson. I was the only photographer that Phil let into his locker room all 11 times. The first photographer really? in was always me. And there was a reason for that. And, he, and I should know this, but the, the famous picture of Michael Jordan, I think his father had recently passed away. I don't know if you, sure. if you were around or if that was your picture. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's my and picture. That's a, and for those of you who haven't, I mean, it's iconic, right? And I, and I have a note here. I want to talk about iconic images, but... That one, I think, with Michael hugging the trophy, I think he was laying on the floor, right? And his father had passed away that year at some point. Yeah, yeah. If you have access to the room, wow. Yeah, you're talking about the picture from, I believe it was 93. 
six or his the second three Pete. I'm not sure, but there are two different pictures here. The one okay. I think you were referring to was his first championship where he's hugging the trophy, okay. crying his eyes out. His dad is next to him, sort of consoling him. Okay. That was in '91 at the forum in the old forum the visitors' old dressing room. But, yeah, of a closet. The worst. Absolutely unbelievable. Bedlam chaos going on in that locker room. And some sixth sense, you know, said, look over here. Because they couldn't find Michael anywhere. You know, the, uh, TV was trying to get him live and all this stuff. And something said, just look to your left. I was standing on a bridge table. Remember, they used to put tables in the middle of the locker room so the guys could get their gum and their tick, leave the tickets there and all that. Right. Oh God, memories. That, yes, yes. And that's the only vantage point I could get. Cause literally chaos going on in this tiny little locker room. And on top of that, the network decided, Oh, let's do the, the trophy presentation live yeah. in the locker room. Yeah. So anyway, that's how that picture all happened. <laughs> wow. Again, that's amazing. And in point of reference, I was fortunate to work for the Lakers at a young age and those rooms, I'm trying to think if I can give it a description, but yeah. I mean, what, probably 10 feet, maybe this is an exaggeration, probably 15 feet wide by probably yeah. 50 feet long. I mean, not yeah. a big room. And no. you have the post-game television in there with celebrations and champagne and chaos. Yeah. I mean, yeah. words alone can't describe that. Yeah, wow. it, had, it, probably had, it probably had like a nine-foot ceiling, you know, and yeah. uh, and the network built a little stage in like in the corner with – TV cameras and cables and lighting and every, and by that point, everybody had come in, you know, they got families yeah. in there. You got, you know, all the players, champagne is flying all over the place. It was insanity. Thank wow. God they don't do that anymore. But, uh, but if anybody can appreciate it, it's you, cause you, you know, the forum backwards and forwards. Yeah. yeah. You know, in my Great. mind's eye now I'm remembering those crazy tiny, the King's locker room was probably <laughs> the size of like a glorified, men's room right it, yeah and that was the home team's locker room it was crazy yeah. it's crazy and how things have changed right i mean the, the yeah. locker rooms now and the palaces oh. are unbelievable yeah exactly I, I, go back to the iconic shots andy and i think there's one that i, I see everywhere and i think i saw it when i was doing some just research just to make sure i didn't forget anything here and it's the famous shot that i think is seen everywhere with I think birds leaning into magic or magic leaning into bird and yeah was an amazing yeah rivalries of the 80s the celtics winning them the lakers winning them tell what year was that from and, and that got a ton of exposure yeah right? yeah that's well you can't see it here but it's hanging right off to the left here a huge print of it, it uh, because it ended up being the cover of sports illustrated um that was the 87 finals and uh it's, it was very interesting scott because as you and a lot of sports fans who listening or watching this know that bird and magic um although they were the two greatest players and the two best players on their teams, they never really guarded each other. I mean, they right. would play different positions. The, the way it was set up back in, in those days, it wasn't a lot of what we call switching going on where guards would, would guard forwards or forwards would guard guards. You know, sometimes that would happen, you know, if a guy got picked or something. So the only times I could really get bird and magic in the same frame together was the captain's meeting at five minutes before the game when they come out at center court and they meet with the refs and they shake hands and you have a moment there, right? Or when they were lining up during a free throw, right? And some other guys shooting a free throw, they would line up and you got to pray that they're going to line up on the side that's facing you, yeah. first of all, because they could have their backs too, you know? 
And that particular shot, as well as another one that, um, that I shot in Boston Garden that was sort of similar, that was that situation. It's just a free throw situation. But what's really, interest, really interesting about that picture is that neither guy is dominant over the other. They're sort of intertwined. And David Stern actually said that that picture helped define the era because it really was really? the Lakers against the Celtics. Yeah, he did. That's and, flattering. Man. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, it really was. I mean, you know, for your boss to say that, that's, that's first of all, that's really humbling, but it also kind of throws the gauntlet down like, okay, now what do you got? <laughs> exactly. Well, you did a lot since then. And you did, there's a million shots, Andy. But another one that I recently saw that I wrote down is a one to ask you about. There's a phenomenal mm. shot. I think it might have been a season or two ago. Well, it must have been no more than a two ago. It wasn't last year, maybe because of COVID, and we'll get to mm -hmm. the bubble in a minute. But yeah. of LeBron coming in, you've got this wide-angle shot coming back. I mean, yeah. from the floor where you sit, and LeBron's coming in with the scoreboard. What an amazing shot. And that, too, I think was an SI. or Yeah, that's um, hanging right here on top. I, I put my favorite stuff up so I can remember that I actually shot it. Um, <laughs> that was uh, really profound in terms of the timing more than anything and the timing of when it was shot. Um, it, was, it, was, uh, it was right after the tragedy with Kobe. And oh, okay. it was, I think it was 10 days later we had a game. And um, it's against Houston. And I'm looking at it right now. Um, and I do all these remote cameras, which are these stationary cameras that are put in strategic spots all around the court and the arena. And this particular camera is, is, is a, a, a spot that I invented, quite frankly, where we cut a hole. There's stories behind all this stuff and people that you know. Like I talked Lee Zeidman. Believe this. If anybody in the world could believe this is you. Yeah. I talked Lee Zyman into letting me cut a hole in the bottom of the basket stanchion, you know, where there's a pad at the yeah. top. And uh, because I wanted to insert a camera in the hole so that I would get this incredible symmetrical um, perspective, um, like a super wide angle perspective. Yeah. He thought I was nuts, but he, but Lee being Lee, he also said, yeah, that sounds actually pretty cool. Let me see what you can do. So he let me do it. And it, and it got to the point where the NBA then started to design their stanchions around that hole. This is true. So yeah. every arena now where you go, you have two of these holes, one on each side for this, what we call the floor camera, because it's an amazing perspective. Oh, it's a great shot. Yeah. Great. So I, you know, lucky, lucky enough, um, you know, my remotes are on the other side from where I shoot. So I'm actually in the picture on the other baseline. Okay. And I have to time it, just time it right, and I timed it correctly. And it got, I well, it should be, I don't want to say, um, but I want to ask logistically, maybe there's some minutia, but how, so how do you control those remotes? You say you got six cameras. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm yeah. just trying to, is it just punching some buttons? <laughs> well, we, uh, we at the NBA back in the, oh, I guess it was the early 90s, it was the, during the Jordan era, um, we were able to, back then to only do one remote camera because I don't want to get too technical, but you remember putting strobes, I used to put strobes, these gigantic flash units in the ceilings of, uh, or the catwalks of the forum and other arenas. Well, the strobes have to fire, but they only fire one time. And back in the day, you could only have one remote camera set up that it would either you choose to shoot with the remote camera or you shoot with the camera in your hand one or the other because of the strobe because, because of the line. strobes right and they have to what's called synchronize they have to sync so they they shutter 
the, the camera opening its shutter and exposing film in those days right. and the strobes going off have to be in sync. And it, that's a millionth of a second that all that has to happen. And think about how vast an arena is. So back in the day, we used to have to hardwire. We used to run hundreds and hundreds of feet of wire, yeah. right? From my shooting position all the way to the other side of the court or up in the catwalk or wherever this one remote happened to be. Well, we were approached by these egghead engineers, these guys that knew nothing about sports, but they designed this incredible radio controlled um, sync synchronization method of being able to synchronize multiple cameras, almost an infinite number of cameras with the one strobe burst that some, I don't know how they did it. And the wow. reason they did it was actually wow. for, for laboratory use. So if you, they were shooting, oh, whatever it could be, it could be like droplets or vaccines or whatever, whatever they're shooting, you know, right. chemicals. And they came to us thinking that there was an application in sports, which, which there was, but it took two years to R&D this thing. We almost all killed each other. And we're trying to figure this out during an NBA finals, as I remember, it was crazy, crazy stuff. But finally they perfected it. So now what it's all radio controlled. So we have these sort of transceiver brains that are attached to each remote camera. And then there's a master brain that sends the signal to all of those brains, to all of those remotes wow. that when I push an auxiliary button that's attached to my camera, it's just a little plunger button. Um, it's, it sends from the main brain to all the other ones go off. And that happens wow. literally in a millionth of a second by radio. I mean, Look, if we can get signals to the space station and Mars and everywhere else, you know, we can do this. But to me, it was pretty amazing technology, you know. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> so now we can do an infinite number, and that happens to be one of the angles that I do. So go back for a minute. You talk about relationships. You talk about Pat Riley, and you talked about building that and with Genie Bus, et cetera. Lee Zeidman. And for those who don't know Lee, um, I've known Lee, Andy's known Lee since the days of the old Inglewood Farm, which is yep. still there across the street from the magnificent new SoFi mm -hmm. Stadium. And Lee Zeidman was at the time in operations, but uh, now over at Staples, of course, and running yeah. Staples as a president. But mm -hmm. Lee is a wonderful guy, but tough. Yeah. So yeah. you yeah. to convince him, and I know you're official photographer of the Lakers and Kings and the Staples mm -hmm. Center, but Mm -hmm. Not unless for you to go to him and say, I got this idea, crazy idea. I want to cut a hole in the bottom of the stanchion of the basket. <laughs> I, want, I want the exclusive opportunity to lay the camera in there. I'm sure Lee's first answer was, you know, you know, pretty colorful. Yeah. Uh, but right. it's the relationship. And you're going back to what you've been able to achieve for 40 years that allowed yeah. it. And yeah. that's the difference maker. <clears throat> well, as you know, Lee Lee is is got his gruff side, but Lee is an innovative guy. And Lee loves to listen to new ideas anything that's going to enhance the fan experience, anything that's going to right. enhance his arena, um, something new and different. I mean, he and I have had many conversations over the years about even with hockey and, and, you know, where we could put cameras or how we can shoot things differently when the Kings were on the Stanley cup run, Lee is always approachable. Uh, I mean, you know, he's look, he's the president of a, a major entertainment complex um, he's got a lot on his plate, but um, I love the guy to death. I, I really do. He's the kind of guy who, who you go toe to toe with, and then you'll just go into the club and have a beer with him. <laughs> uh, he's a he's a great guy, and he's done. A, he's he is where he is today because of his 
intellect and, and um, ingenuity and, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. and good for him. Yeah. Good and for he's him. a, and he's a great manager, by the way. He, he, you know, you're, you're on your toes with Lee all the time and, you know, that could, that could be detrimental as somebody who works for him, or you could take that as a challenge that, that he's, right. he's continually challenging you and raising the bar. And I know, you know, you've been in this business a long time, Scott, you know, that, that, you know, nothing happens when things stay stagnant. Uh, you have to continually be, and you try things, some things don't work and you learn from that. So. Well, we, we worked with Lee, I guess a year or so ago on a replacement of a long time, uh, employee of his that did all mm-hmm. the booking and, and left but mm-hmm. you know and, and again known Lee for a number of years but to your point he's he's tough but he's very very fair and the loyalty of and it goes both ways right you gotta you can't demand loyalty and not give loyalty back mm-hmm. but the, the tenure of people that have worked for Lee for years I mean when yeah. we, he engages to do the search and the replacement he goes mm-hmm. you know I haven't really lost I haven't really hired anybody this magnitude in years because no one <laughs> leaves right that's so Lee can be tough but he's extremely fair yeah, uh, and a great guy to work for to your point. So yeah, well, David Stern was like that too. You know, we when I started with the NBA, it was a, a tiny little infant company. <laughs> NBA Entertainment didn't exist. NBA Properties had four people working for four wow. in, in the league office. There was two offices. You know, it was ridiculous. Uh, that was what eighty two, eighty three, and that yeah, range? that was yeah, pretty much yeah. Eighty three was my first real gig with the NBA, which is right. the eighty three All Star Game at the Forum. Which you were probably at, I would think. Yeah. You were probably there. Yeah. yeah, but David, back in the day, we would call him Uncle David. I mean, it was really like a little family that we wow. had. Yeah. And then it became this gigantic conglomerate worldwide company. But he always, he managed, you know, tough and he challenged. Um, and he, he didn't have the greatest patience in the world, but he also wanted the, to make the most of, of the people he had because he, he knew that if he pushed even further that that you had it in you you know it's almost like the mamba mentality before kobe created it you know um and i respected that from david i always did i always knew that uh that he he had his antenna up all the time and he knew everything that was going on and he would call you on it you know i mean luckily i never had like a run-in with him but I knew people who did, who actually came out better for it because it. Well, it I'm just going to say, them. Andy, there's, there's, and I've been fortunate to be in business for a long time, and it's not indigenous to sport. I think it's indigenous <clears throat> to senior management. But mm-hmm. I worked for um, somebody in my career where if you didn't push back, mm-hmm. um, then I, and then you know, they'd say, "Well, you, this person doesn't have the strength and the character to be a leader for me." So mm-hmm. I, I've heard stories about David. And I think to your point, whether it's you or his other executives or anybody else that push back and didn't necessarily take the gruffness and, and said, well, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. I think it garners so much more respect from the other side, from a David Stern. Gary Bettman was like, Gary was a yeah. guy who wanted to work for. Tremendous mm-hmm. respect for Gary, but he challenged you. And if yeah. you didn't stand up to the challenge, yeah. you, you know, you may not have you know, advanced on because I think leaders are looking for that. They're not looking yeah. for yes men or yes women mm-hmm. for challengers. And so to your point, yeah. I'm sure David was like that. Yeah, and on, on the flip side of that, Scott, you, you've probably been, and I've definitely been around people I've had to work for that didn't have that self-confidence, that didn't believe in themselves, right? That didn't believe right. that they even belonged in that position of, of yeah. authority yeah. And, and management. And that would come through with, with the, them being bullies and, and aggressive 
because I guess they were just trying to justify it. And that's a recipe for disaster because in business, you can't get anything done that way. You can't be continually putting your people on their heels and, and, and not being able to back that up with your own, um, I guess, competence and your own um, willingness to, to take risks. And then if the risks fail, you learn from them and you move forward or you circle the wagons and you do something else. Um, but unfortunately I've had to work for a couple of people like that along the way. And those people have fallen off to the wayside, quite yeah. frankly, and guys like you and I are still doing what we do. So there's a reason for that. Well, I think it's, it, it's simple. You gotta take care, you gotta treat people nice and then it comes back away, come yeah. back around. Mm -hmm. What, uh, let's talk about the bubble. Mm -hmm. You alluded to it. I mean, God forbid we ever have to live through that again. Although quickly yeah. as we sit here uh, at the end of the uh, 2020, November and December, mm -hmm. I'm still not sure when we're going to have uh, arenas and stadiums full of fans. But yeah. talk about that experience. That must have been, you know, and I know you went down a little bit into there and then got there in time perhaps for the playoffs. But mm -hmm. describe a little bit of that experience and, and the nuance of it. The nuance of two, yeah. two people of a word. Well, it was, it was crazy. March 11th, um, everything shut down. Uh, 100% of my work went away on March 11th. So March 10th, we were doing great. <laughs> um, I had uh, three teams going on. Lakers, Clippers, and Kings are playing a full schedule in Staples Center. We had two G League teams going on. We had events going on in Staples Center and Microsoft Theater. Sometimes we'd have three, four events a day that we were responsible for shooting all over town. And then March 11th, boom, everything shut down. So that was a shock. <laughs> um, I was able to get the PPP loan, which was very helpful for keeping the, the business afloat for a couple of months. And then unfortunately, you know, I had to lay people off because right. we just had no work. So by the time the NBA came up with the bubble idea, I was ready to go back to work. <laughs> you know, I needed to work. I needed to earn. I was, get, I was getting a little... You know, even though I was doing a lot of work with my other business, my Legends of Sport business, I was, you know, I needed to work. <laughs> so they presented, my boss at the NBA presented the scenario of three different waves of photographers to go down over basically the three and a half months. Um, you know, the beginning with the setup and the initial, you know, games and, uh, well, mini training camp and games and then the middle portion and then basically conference finals and finals, which really is what the three preferred. different ways because of um a capacity just, or lack of capacity side well because it, yeah because we were very limited to how many photographers could be there um it was agreed that only three or four would really be allowed in the bubble it was very very expensive for, for the nba to to have staff have people right. there and um they they needed to keep the they needed to just keep the personnel to a minimum quite frankly. So we weren't allowed to bring assistance. We were just by ourselves. So I chose the third portion, which I think is what he had preferred me to do anyway. <clears throat> and my good friend and cohort, Nat Butler, came down with me at that point. There were two other photographers there um, who had been there from the beginning. I mean, these guys were at the end had been there like 110 days, wow. which is you know, crazy. Wow. Yeah. So the four of us just split up the conference finals and covered the finals um, together. And that was 53 days, but it was, um, it was much different obviously than any 
other coverage I've ever done with no photographers on the court. I was say, no. you weren't sitting on the floor. I mean, you're, no. you're perched for no. 40 years and been sitting on the baseline. Yeah, yeah it was tough. Now you were, so were you uh, up on the side in the stand? Were you on the end zone? Or? Yeah, they put us in the corners. So if you were looking at the TV screen, we were sort of the bottom left, bottom right, okay. like sort of out of shot, but where the TV slash cameras are in the corners, basically. Okay. And so they put advertising signage around the entire court. Mm -hmm. And the court, the floor of the court was completely clean. No videographers, no photographers. And we were off to the side. And then there was one more position, which was somewhat elevated around center court. And the court, the arena was basically a, a set that they had built. The NBA had built inside mm -hmm. another arena. It wasn't, you know, wasn't a, a real court. It was a fake kind of not fake, but it was a red a made for TV situation right, right. with the video boards and the, and the virtual fans, you know, the piped in music. Um, it, and they tried to their best to make it seem as realistic as possible. How did it sound Andy in the building? Uh, it sounded, it, it, it sounded somewhat realistic because they piped in piped cheering in. and, and there was crescendos of crowd cheering. And, and of course they had the PA announcers, they had different PA announcers who, who had their own style and stuff. And you'd look up and you'd see fans, but they were virtual fans yeah. on a video board. Did they pipe in any boom? I mean, that's controversial, but if there was yeah. a, uh, you know, a controversial call to say the least, would they pipe yeah. in any, you know, jeering or any? No, no. Imagine no. that would not, not no, be advantageous. But what was interesting is that you really could hear the conversations on the court where you no. normally couldn't. So you would hear the coaches yelling, the funniest thing, and I love this guy to death, Mike D'Antoni, a great friend of mine, right? And Mike, older guy, older gentleman, right? And they was, there was concern about him and Greg Popovich and some of the older coaches even going to the bubble. Right. So I guess those guys had to just absolutely guarantee that they would keep their masks on all the time, right? So some of the coaches didn't do that, the younger coaches, but some of them, the older guys did, right? Yeah. And and Mike would get so animated and, and yelling and screaming, he just ripped the mask off <laughs> and so that the ref could actually see what he had to say, you know, and then put the mask back on. So it was it was kind of comical at times, but um, I, I, I honestly felt like I was a little bit inside a video game because you-, you Like a yeah, studio, right? It was almost yeah, like you, a Hollywood studio, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And there were literally no fans. There was nobody watching. By the time we got to the conference files and finals, they allowed families to come. But it was, you know, I think at the final game, there might have been 30 people there, wow. <laughs> literally. So and then there was, was a the second. Biggest? No, as I was gonna say, there was a second tier. So the second tier was we were in what was called the green level. The second tier was considered uh, yellow. And the two couldn't mix because we were we had went through full quarantine, okay. full protocol. The yellow could come and go, but there was plexiglass in front of the yellow section, and that's where the owners would be. So Steve Bomber, Jeannie Bus, all the owners were up there, and uh, you know you'd look up and and you know you'd see them, you'd wave Pat Riley, I'd wave to him, you know, but there was no interaction. It was so bizarre. <laughs> wow. What was the biggest challenge there? I mean, you lived there, what you said, 53 days, 53 days. Yeah. Hotel, you know, sterile environment, you know, mm -hmm. and again, some of the players and, and uh, um, were there three and a half yeah. months, but yeah. what was the biggest challenge? The biggest challenge for me was like a, it was like a, a psychological um, 
challenge. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it really was. I mean, you're in, I didn't realize it was going to be this profound, but you're, you're in a confined situation. I mean, you cannot leave. I've never been in that. Like, even when you go to college, you know, and you're a freshman and you're in your dorm, you know that like there's an outside world. You could walk into town or you could like go home if you wanted to on the bus or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, and even, I mean, I, I equate it kind of to like when I went to summer camp, sleepaway camp when I was 11 years old and, you know, the bus drops you off and then you're like stuck in this place that you can't leave. But, you know, you could leave if you really wanted to. When yeah. we are in the bubble, if you left, you were done. You were out. You could never come back. So um, that was weird. That was tough because the outside world is, and we were in Disney, which was also kind of, you know, surreal. Yeah, see, that's the oxy. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's yeah. A word, but no, it's it's, it's place on Earth, and you're stuck inside it, right? Right, and and think about it, Scott. I mean, they they opened Disney Disney World, so it's so a families are going to Disney World, like, and we could see the park from our hotel, basically. You know, from the tower of the hotel, you could see it, the Magic Kingdom. Yeah. So you're thinking that there's families out there doing that. We're in the middle of Florida during the absolute spike of the pandemic, right? I mean, COVID is absolutely going bananas in, in central Florida at that point. Right. And it, the whole thing just didn't add up. <laughs> it just did. And here we are, you know, all, and we felt, I felt 100% safe there, quite frankly, from yeah. COVID because right. of the testing. We had to do testing twice a day, wow. uh, every day. We had to test ourselves when we first woke up, and then we had to go down the hall and get physically tested with nasal and, and throat swabs and wait for those results to come in. And we knew that the Disney employees were getting tested. And uh, that was the biggest challenge, honestly, uh, being away from home. You know, it was, I looked at it as a very long road trip, yeah. um, but the, the, it wasn't, you know, the hotel was nice, but it was, just, the rooms were small you're in the middle of Florida. It was about 97% humidity and heat every day. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't like yeah. the most picturesque <laughs> situation, but I was there to work. Um, at one point I did 16 games in a row. I had two days off in the 53 days I was there. Oh. And, um, but I, I took it as a, as, as a challenge and, a re and kind of gave me the opportunity to do things with legends of sport. I did, I think I did five podcasts from my little hotel room. Um, from the bubble uh, that we wow. actually put out. So we had a whole, we had just partnered with the LA Times at that point. So we, we started a whole um, program of 16 weeks uh, exploring the nuances of the bubble in the WNBA and the NBA side. That's a good segue, because I want to talk about that. That's become a, 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 another business of yours, and mm -hmm. extremely yeah. successful. And there's one episode I'll talk to you in a minute that really, really uh, resonated with me. But talk about Legend of Sport the project, your LA Times now is there back in the involvement. Explain a little bit of what it is and what, what drove you to do that. Well, um, yeah, great question, Scott. I, I know you have friends who've been in the sports business for a long time, uh, just as I do. And a couple of these friends and I were, happened to be at, at the MLB All-Star Game. This is probably 12 years ago or something. We were in, we were in Arizona, just enjoying the weekend. One of my friends had like full access and was able to get us in. And uh, I don't know about you, but, you know, guys our age don't really ever sit around, you know, having a beer and, and 
and say, oh, where do you think you're going to be 10 years from now? You know, my wife and her friends, they do it all the time. You know, women are great at that. I don't mean to be sexist, but yeah. like guys don't really do that. In my experience, you know, guys are talking about whatever, their families, their business, what's going on. But we did this sort of exercise in, in like introspection and and where would you like to be 10 years from now? What do you want to do? And, and the three of us, quite honestly, came up with the same answer that A, we want to work together, the three of us. We want to do something in sports. We don't want to work for anybody. (laughs) And we want to do something that's going to give back. I mean, like almost together in unison, we said those things. And so we, we thought about it a lot and how are we going to do that? And, and what, what I had experienced and my friends and what you've seen who've been around a lot is is a lot of these um, retired athletes, especially in basketball, which is the one I'm closest to, but in other sports, you know, some, some of them have fallen on really hard times. Some of them have had really tremendous difficulty post-retirement because A, they weren't prepared for it. They weren't educated about what was going to happen. They weren't set up financially. Um, so that, you know, the Magic Johnsons, the Shacks of the world are very few and far between. Sure. Um, and they've seen some real horror shows, you know, as you have. And we don't have to name names, but we could, you know, tick them off. And it's just so tragic. And I remember going to All-Star Weekends and they'd be bringing out these amazing legends, uh, guys who, Hall of Famers, who people didn't even know who they were. Um, I remember going to China, went to China many, many times and they'd bring legends. And the fans had no idea. They didn't know who Dr. J was. They wow. didn't know, you know, I mean, it wow. was just a shame. So we found that the niche was probably going to be with retired athletes and legends. And so we named the company Legends of Sport. And we wanted it to be sport, all encompassing worldwide. And uh, we kept sort of kicking the idea around. And I kept getting some great feedback from from mentors, people I respected in the business, people like Peter Goober. Uh, I went to Kobe about it. And Kobe was very helpful but he said, Andy, he said, what you're trying to do is really great. Um, trying to help athletes. You're trying to, you know, do something very altruistic. But there has to be a business behind it. There has to be a revenue-producing engine that's going to fuel that, yeah, right? Kobe, I mean, what a brilliant. Yeah. And he said, look, he said, that all will come as a result of being successful in business, making a business out of it. So essentially, you're going to create a, we're going to create a foundation based on what the business can do, not the other way around, which is kind of honestly how we were thinking. Um, And he helped me kind of pencil that out, you know? And uh, so we decided to lead off with a podcast. And um, this, this is speaks to somebody else, you know, Norm Pattis, a great friend who owned Westwood one radio, incredibly successful, had just sold Westwood one. And instead of going off into retirement, he decided to, strike lightning in in a bottle again and started podcast one. He was so successful with the radio business. He decided to do it in, in podcasting. And he had been watching this show that I do on the Laker network called through the lens, where I sit with a Laker personality. I talk to them about their career through my photos. He said, Andy, we got to bring that show to my podcast network at a game at some game pregame. He brings me over. I said, well, Norm, that's great. I love it. But you know, this is a, visual and it's like we're showing pictures you've got a podcast network which yeah. to my knowledge is really audio <laughs> he said well we'll figure something out so i came we had a couple of lunches 
And we came up with the podcast, Legends of Sport, which is essentially the same idea where I sit with, with a personality in sports and we talk about their career and we talk about where they came from. And I found very quickly, Scott, that I had, I really, I had, a, I had a, an affinity to doing this. I, I enjoyed talking to people. Everybody has a story. Everybody had a beginning. Everybody had somebody or a group of people that pushed them. That's, that's a thread that goes through every, every iconic person in sports. Um, you know, Peter Goober, for, I, I love talking about this story where, you know, Peter is one of the, the greatest owners in sports, right? He owns Warriors. He owns the Dodgers. He built three buildings at the same time, you know, <laughs> in California with owns LAFC, the soccer team. Yeah. Um, but Peter talks about how growing up in Boston, that he was a, a Red Sox fan, was so broke as a kid that he couldn't even afford a, a bleacher ticket at Fenway Park. He'd have to stand outside in Yawkey Way, listening to the game going on, right, with wow. the cheers, yeah. and hope that a home run ball came over the green monster. You know, that, that was like his introduction to sports, and look where he is now. So wow. I respect that. I respect people's stories. Um, and uh, I think we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to do good here. We're doing social justice issues. Um, we're talking about mental health issues. Uh, a, a lot of the, the social justice um, conversation that was started in the bubble uh, really made an impact on me. And I, uh, I, took, I took that opportunity while I was there to really learn what was going on, like really learn what Black Lives Matter means. Um, you know, it's... It's, it's humbling to think about, I've worked around African-American athletes my entire career, but I don't really understand yeah. Yeah. their story. I don't understand the battle. You know, I never had to have the talk that so many African-American dads have had to have with their teenage sons. Like it's so foreign to me, yeah. but right. one after the other kept talking to me and telling me about it. And um, just did a great episode with the Tom Thomas, who's not a household name, but he, he leads the way right now in athlete and activism issues and amazing guy. Well, I want you to talk about where to find it, but on all your you know, traditional podcast um, networks, so to speak, mm -hmm. but you talk about the mental health aspect of it. And, and mm -hmm. Andy, I've listened to many of your uh, legend of sport uh, podcast, but one that struck me uh, really, really close was the interview with Jerry West. I think it was in uh, August and, clearly a hall of famer, the logo as he's often referred to, or the uh, NBA yeah. referred to. But Jerry talked really candidly and I didn't, you know, I know I was fortunate to work with the Lakers as a really young kid when Jerry was still playing and that's for another time, another day, but, mm -hmm. and then knew him as a Laker executive and of course the head coach and then the general manager of the Lakers. But your interview with Jerry was, Andy was amazing. And, and where you got Jerry to talk about his mental illness and his anxiety and his depression Mm -hmm. um, it, it struck me and congrats on that, on that, uh, mm -hmm. session alone. Well, thank you, Scott. Yeah. He, look, I've known Jerry my whole career too. One of the very first like real like portrait shoots I had to do is with Jerry West in his, in his office, you know, and the NBA sent me in there and I, I you remember Mary Lou Liebich, who was his, yeah. his guardian, you know, of, of, <laughs> of everything, Jerry, uh, his, his right hand. And uh, I come up there with my lights and my camera and, and she looks at me, she said, you ready? <laughs> and I was like sweating bullets, you know? And I said, I hope so. And she said, okay. I think it was almost like, 
throwing me into the fire because here's the great Jerry Wesson. And honestly, Scott, he couldn't have been nicer, more accommodating. Um, he didn't have a lot of time. You know, Jerry never had a lot of, never has a lot of time. He's always very, you know, you have to be very expeditious with Jerry. Um, but from that moment, he, there was just a great sort of, I don't know, meeting of the minds. And I saw him as, as a person rather than somebody who's very intimidating. Um, and I was around him a lot, uh, did his camp with magic and Maui. And of course, you know, all the great Laker memories that we have together. Um, but Jerry was very, very open in his book that he wrote in 2009, uh, co-authored by this amazing author, Jonathan Coleman, about how his life, he's had a very tormented life. And we, we all know, you know, Jerry was sort of a nervous guy and that he could never watch games from his seat and he was always pacing around. and Always stood in the tunnel by the forum. Yeah, but, and, and there's legendary stories that he couldn't even watch like an entire finals game that he just had to leave and drive around and listen to it on the radio. You know, the game is going on at the forum. Um, and there was much unsaid about Jerry's life uh, that he finally put out in his book and he talked about um, some trauma that he had as a child, um, his difficult relationship with his father, his brother uh, died um, in the Korean war. Uh, I think he was 20 years old and Jerry, I think was 14 or something. And had that has stayed with him his entire wow. life wow. and his competitiveness um, beyond you know, normal competitiveness. I mean, it, it became an obsession. Um, the fact that he had to endure losing to the Celtics six times in the finals, six times as That's a player, as a player. Yeah. unbelievable. Right. Yeah. Um, and kept coming back for more. <laughs> Finally got the ring against the Knicks in 70, whatever year that was. And to the photo above my shoulder here. Yeah. From that year. Right, uh, right, right, right. Found 1972. Yeah. Right, right. And got some vindication, at least as a player, but, you know, didn't from beating the Celtics until the Lakers actually beat them in 85 when he was the GM. Right. And he calls that his greatest championship because, you wow. know, he, he was wow. part of that. He was the architect. Um, but Jerry, honestly, um, now at 82 years old, uh, He's very willing to talk about his struggles, his battles, his demons. Um, Jerry really led the way. I mean, I think it's safe to say in, in, in sports, he really led the way in, in laying it all out there. I mean, Kevin Love, God bless him, has gotten a lot of credit and well-deserved credit for, for putting his um, battles out there with mental health. Um, so many other players as well, but I think, they need to really honor Jerry because Jerry's book, he didn't have to write that book and he didn't have to write that kind of book. He chose to do that. What's interesting at the time, Scott, it really wasn't given the respect that it deserved. Um, there, were, there were reviews about it. There were some articles, but you know, mental health now being at the forefront right. of the athlete's experience in professional and, and amateur sports. Um, I, I wonder if that book, had come out now at the impact that that would make, especially with social media being where it is well, now. And an icon like Jerry to tell the story, right? Which yeah. You're right. The timing of it, 2008, I think you said in the books, West by West. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, which mm -hmm. I have not read, but now will read you and I were talking about before we started mm -hmm. talking formally here, but yeah. Um, 
And I, I want to keep you. We're gosh, we're almost an hour into this, and we could go on and on and on. Oh, we, it's fun. I love it for years. But the the um, the podcast is Legends of Sport. It's on mm -hmm. all the you know Spotify and Apple and mm -hmm. all the other uh, uh, normal outlets. But what else should we know about uh, Legends of Sport? Um, mm -hmm. Just in terms of what you got planned, or yeah. Or, yeah, the podcast is is actually um, co-produced and, and distributed by the LA Times. So if, if you're an LA Times reader online or at home, um, you can get get the podcast on their app, which is great. Um, but at the same time, you can also get it from Apple, Spotify, Anchor, all the other podcast uh, networks. Um, we release the podcast uh, every other Tuesday and it's released as an audio podcast and also a full video podcast. And that can be found on our YouTube channel, Legends of Sport. And uh, we have, of course, social media, Instagram, at Legends of Sport. And um, our TikTok channel is also Legends of Sport. And Twitter, which we've been, been doing a lot on Twitter these days, uh, at Legends underscore of Sport. And my photography, um, we continue, I continue to post things almost daily on my Instagram. It's ADB Photo Inc. And what we have down the pipe is um, some events, some virtual events. We wish we could do, uh, you know, in-person events, but we're going to do some virtual events and involve legends. Um, more to be revealed about that. And please, folks, just check our social media and listen to the podcast. But we have some three or four events planned um, for the first quarter of next year. So um, keeping our fingers crossed that that can happen. And... Um, other projects we're working on something right now uh, involving documenting the murals, all the murals that are going up all over the world, honoring Kobe and Gigi. Uh -huh. uh, so we've, we've partnered with a gentleman who has a, an incredible site and I'm going to plug his site here, which is called Kobe mural.com or on Instagram it's Kobe mural. And this guy, Mike Asner has tracked every mural throughout the world of which there's probably five or 600 murals in wow, places you wouldn't really? even believe. Wow. I mean, Pakistan, um, we, there's one in, uh, there's multiple ones in Australia, China, every place in Europe. I mean, it's yeah. really, really mind blowing actually. And we've met many of the local muralists here in LA. In fact, I have a guy coming over today who the building owner who owns the building where my office is has very graciously and generously offered to, to put a Kobe mural on the outside wall of our building, which wow. is amazing. So wow. the muralist is going to come over today and kind of sketch all that out. So it's pretty cool. Pretty cool stuff. And you're a champ. And, and I, I can, I can uh, humbly say the first hall of famer I've ever spoken to you in this, uh, <laughs> in this context. And so it's an honor, uh, as a Hall of Famer, but and he's a dear friend and someone that I've known, like, we, like you and I said at the outset from 1983 or 84, uh, you've done amazing work. We didn't even get into Bruce Springsteen conversations <laughs> about Freehold because our, our office is in Freehold and Andy's a passionate Bruce Springsteen fan and follower and friend. Yeah. But thank you so much for your time, Andy. Uh, appreciate and congrats on all your amazing success, your Hall of Fame career. And I look forward to uh, speaking again, hopefully when we can get back in the arenas and see you back to, uh, doing your great craft. Oh, absolutely, Scott. Thanks so much, man. It's so great you know, to stay in touch. We've stayed in touch over the years through Facebook and yeah. stuff. And I follow what you're doing with Prodigy, which is really, really incredible. And uh, great to connect this way as well. I'm, I'm available anytime. Anytime you want to chat, want to talk about Bruce, want to talk about sports, 
talk about Lee Zeidman. I don't care. <laughs> I love I love talking to you. <laughs> All right, my friend, you're you're a good friend. Best way should stay healthy, you and your family, and have you a too. happy holiday. You too, Scott. Thanks, pal. Thanks so much. <laughs>